What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. Let's talk real quick. Now, it's no secret that the economic system is rigged against us. It's hard to get ahead, and that's by design. But we're not stuck. We have more power than you might think. And that's why Push Black is launching a new podcast called Building Black Dollars. On this show, we address the daily issues black folks face financially and the actions we can take right now to solve those problems. We're tackling topics like savings, investing, home ownership, and debt management. And we're answering questions about all of this from listeners just like you. Upping our financial literacy is how we make sure our individual financial houses are in order. But let's be clear, individual black wealth won't save our people. It's gonna take a collective effort. So we're talking about how we can use cooperative economics to build our own system within the larger economy. So if you're trying to get your money right, tune in to Building Black Dollars by Push Black. Catch it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Let's start building together, folks. Peace. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast she wondered if it was her corset crushing her lungs or a deep-seated anxiety that sent beads of sweat pooling down her neck performing in public had never crossed sarah's mind and doing so during the season's most anticipated celebration was unimaginable. But there she stood amongst a group of Black women, ready to strut her stuff at the Mardi Gras parade. Sarah sucked in a deep breath and balled her hands into fists. The impulse to run away lay heavy in her chest, but she willed herself to stand with her head held high. Because this was bigger than a performance. This was how she'd take back her dignity. In many parts of the Jim Crow South, the words poor and black had become synonymous, including in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
white businesses, bulldozing over black enterprises, fueled segregation, and pushed our people into concentrated areas of poverty. As more black people populated these spaces, the more the city neglected them, giving most of their resources to white invaders. This neglect hit black women especially hard. Sexism compounded with racism and job discrimination left women with few rights and little autonomy. With so little power, black women were especially vulnerable to violence. Poor and black, Sarah lived this struggle. Like a walking corpse, she got by on low wages, worked hard to survive, and gave all she could even when she had nothing left to give. And then she met Lovey. Lovey was loud, proud, and quick to tell you what you didn't ask for. She was unafraid to call a thing a thing. She spoke against white folks stealing their pay and against the racism that stared her down whenever she went into town. Inspired by the older woman and tired of having a voice that was softer than a whisper, Sarah joined Lovey and a community of black women just as fed up with going unheard and being dehumanized. They were tired of the misery. They had to do something. So they mapped out a plan and the result was a unique brand of resistance. They dressed as baby dolls, donning bonnets, bloomers, and baby doll dresses. It may have looked like they were playing dress up, but dolling up like this wasn't a game. This was defiance. After months of organizing and sewing these jaw-dropping outfits, they stood as one at Mardi Gras. Sarah's heart still raced. She looked to Lovey with eyes widened with fear. But when Lovey offered a stern nod to the younger woman, Sarah pushed her shoulders back. She couldn't run. The time was now to take back her voice. And just like that, the women crashed Mardi Gras. Seeing such infantile costumes, the white crowd jeered and booed, their condescending and uncomfortable laughter echoing. Sarah smirked. They matched their jeers with joyous laughter, gyrated their hips to the sound of the beat. No amount of white interference was going to stop them. Such defiance against racism and sexism demanded everyone's attention and forced them to stop treating black women as invisible, exactly as they planned. Their creative resistance inspired the black elite to use their resources and rebel too. So let them inspire us as well. We can join together, raise our voices, and demand what we're owed, just like the black baby dolls. Up next, Jay sits down with Latoya Johnson to talk about an issue that so many of us have been conditioned to accept, and that's the exploitation of our labor, especially Black women's labor. Latoya is the perfect person to navigate this conversation. She is the founder and co-director of the Collective Steps Project, an organization holistically empowering Black women and girls. By providing resources, workshops, and other forms of community support, the collective encourages women to advocate for themselves, which women are so often told not to do. 
Policy work is also important at the Collective Steps Project. They're working to advance policies that challenge a range of inequities, including those related to economics, gender, and health. Stay tuned. What does Black liberation look like to you, Latoya? Black liberation, uh, to me, looks like us gaining those wins that we've been naming for centuries, right? And so that looks like uh, fair wages, living wages. That looks like equitable housing, access to, to equitable housing. That looks like equal access to education. But that also, to me, looks like us being able to sustain as our own in our own communities. So that also looks like us educating ourselves about our history, um, us educating ourselves on like how to conduct these trades and and um, like so how to navigate society on our own. Us liberating ourselves, meaning us knowing our history, us knowing our work and our worth, and us actually knowing what it takes. To, to, to live amongst ourselves and being able to execute those things politically. Mm -hmm. You could start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. We can just go from there. Tell me about the work that you do and yourself. Yeah, of course. And that's like one of the hardest questions in the world, right? Who, who can sit here and talk about themselves? But my name is Latoya Johnson. I am an LMSW, a licensed social worker. And I'm also a forensic social worker, so which is basically the intersection of social work and the legal system, right? Applying social work principles to law-related issues and litigation. But mainly, also, I am the organizing director of the New Orleans Worker Center for Racial Justice. And here at NOWCRJ, we are an organization that's led by Black and immigrant workers who organize to demand fair and dignified work as well as racial and economic justice, right? So we organize to gain power and resources for the working class people in the state of Louisiana. I appreciate that summary. So what does that look like, fair and dignified work? Fair and dignified work means living wages, right? And not just minimum wage. Fair and dignified work looks like training and education across the board. Fair and dignified work may look like addressing barriers that may not necessarily impact all workers. So issues like child care for women, right? Access to transportation. Fair and dignified work looks like actually educating and practicing the laws that are already in place. So not stealing wages from employees, uh, actually giving them time off for the things that need time, time off or paid, paid leave, right? And so, so generally, fair and dignified works really means giving folks an opportunity and the chance to actually make those wages, make that living so they can be successful in the economy because they are the drivers of our economy. So there's a lot there that I want to unpack. Before we get too deep into that, I'm curious for sure. What brought you to this work? Ooh, honestly, I think most Black people are already somewhat social workers and organizers in their own right, especially in the church. And so what brought me to the work was basically I grew up in the church and, you know, in Black church, you got Sunday dinners and then you're feeding folks with the spaghetti dinners and then you have, what is it? I'm sorry. 
you have day centers for the elderly, you uh, have a closed closet maybe for the homeless. And in executing all those things, I firsthand like, saw the inequities in this city, right? And then we have Hurricane Katrina that hit, and I'm witnessing the people that are struggling on the ground, but also what's happening in the media and in Washington, D.C., right? And so the question then became, why is this happening? How did we get here? And in, in my looking for that knowledge, I, I became more involved in community-led events and community-led initiatives. And through that, I learned how to actually work together in all communities, right, across borders and across communities to actually gain the wins that we're looking to win. You made a point to distinguish between living wages and minimum wages. I think that's mm -hmm. an important distinction to have as it relates to this. Can you um, speak a little more to that? In Louisiana, we default to the federal minimum wage. And so a minimum wage here is $7.25. However, I would say base rent in the city of New Orleans for a one-bedroom apartment, you're looking at about maybe $900, $950. And so if we're paying people a minimum wage and they're bringing home maybe four or $500 a check, but they still can't afford rent and they still can't afford childcare. They can't afford food. They can't afford to live, right? I mean, that to me, that's the living wage. And that's the fairness. That's the equity. And, and that's the fair and dignified work. We go to work every day, right? Making seven twenty-five an hour, doing jobs, low-wage jobs that many people don't want to do. And then the pandemic hits and we're called essential. However, I still can't afford rent. You're saying, thank you for being on the front lines, but I can't afford childcare. You're saying what we need to separate what's six feet apart. We can't be in close quarters with each other with each other because it's dangerous, but because I can't afford rent on minimum wage, I have to live with like four or five families. That's not fair and dignified work, and it's absolutely not a living wage if I cannot afford to live. I appreciate you clarifying that. So let's speak to the pandemic, you know, in your work in the past couple of years, in what ways have you all, you and your organization been approaching those types of challenges? So black and brown people were disproportionately impacted by COVID because of barriers that were already there pre-pandemic. They didn't have access to healthcare. They didn't make living wages, so they couldn't separate themselves from family members and so, so on and so forth. They don't have reliable transportation. Right. They, I mean, it, it was all these things that kind of was like a domino effect with the pandemic, but also making sure that folks had sanitizers and masks and things of that nature throughout the pandemic. But mainly it was a, a major education push around. Here's what happens when we're not prepared. Here's what happens to your communities and your folks. And when I say your, I'm talking like state of Louisiana, city of New Orleans. Take care of your people, and then we'll be more prepared when the pandemic hits. We need access to health care. We need reliable transportation, right? We need living wages. We need livable housing and things of that nature. So those are the things that we're working on. And also, we saw the money that was poured into, like, the, I guess, the recovery of this pandemic. So the ARPA funds, right? The city of New Orleans is getting, I want to say, $385 million to address the recovery of the pandemic. 
But how are those funds being utilized? How are those funds being dispersed? Are they going back into the communities? Are they being uh, used to create programming that would actually help communities that have been impacted by COVID? Are they going back into like the actual hands of workers that were on the front lines of COVID? So we're working to try to kind of leverage the ARPA funds that are coming to the city, but also continuing to advocate for the rights of workers and educate them on the things that are going on around them. For sure. And so by educating the workers, what does that produce? What kind of action could that produce? What kind of outcomes does that produce this ongoing educational push you're referring to? One, empowerment, right? I think when people are empowered to do things and a lot of things move. And also we're moving and building power collectively with education. Also with education, I think I hate to like be cliche and say, well, sometimes when people know better, you know, they do better. But if you're aware of what's happening and why they're happening, if it's, you're more likely to join in and build this collective power, right? And also in educating workers and building this collective power, we can actually have that power to influence policy to make things better for workers in the state of Louisiana. What are the challenges that exist with that. And I say that because there are plenty of people who's, okay, I got my job, just trying to go to work and go home, not mm-hmm. studying collective power or anything like that. But, you know, can you describe the challenges and perhaps a moment, you know, in this process where you've seen it click with folks like, oh, you know, I, I see the the benefits of viewing it and doing things a certain way now? Mm-hmm. If I go to someone or if I'm out in the streets and I say, hey, do you know about wage theft? Do you get paid for overtime? And folks will say, yeah, 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 I'll get paid for overtime. I get paid time and a half. Okay, cool. And so in their mind, they get paid time and a half. So they're okay with their overtime, but then they don't understand that overtime starts at hour number 41. Right. You get overtime for working over 40 hours. And so if you don't know that and like people are stealing your wages, it's going to go on and on and on. And then you get educated about that. Now you're more amped to fight back. And when you're fighting back and fighting back with the collective at that, you're getting educated more and more on kind of like this dual analysis of how things work and how things are connected. So now you see systemically how things are operating and keeping like oppression in its place. So not only are your wages being stolen now, now you see the connection because you're being educated and now you have a support of all those in your collective network. And then you also realize how we can fight all day and we can march the streets and, you know, we can have everybody join us for a rally and everything else. But if we do not move things politically, policy-wise, statewide, like we, we won't be able to address the, the oppression systemically as they are happening. Mm-hmm. For someone listening to this right now, who, you know, mm-hmm. maybe having a light bulb moment or, you know, at any point in this conversation, you know, how do folks, how do workers start taking steps towards educating themselves or those around them about the type of issues that you're talking about? There are plenty of organizations out here in every state that are actually doing the work on the ground to protect workers. So if we can try to link 
with some of those work organizations that are doing the work on the ground in your local areas, right? And so you can latch on to the work that's being done, the education opportunities that's there, even the training opportunities that are there. Um, also, if you're looking at, like if you're at home, you're on your phone and you're just looking some things up and you're at work and things just don't seem right to you, I hate to say Google is a blessing, but we can Google that. We have the internet right in front of us. We can look at the Department of Labor website. We can Google keywords, right, and, and see the, the things, the, the protections that are in place for workers, right? But also, in the meantime, talk to your coworkers. You are not in this alone. If a collective of you get together and say, hey, this is happening to us. Let's research this. Is this right? No, it's not right. Let's collectively get together. Let's talk about solutions. How are we able to move around this, to push through this? How do we approach this employer? What protections do we have? So I think the answer to that would be to, to, to link with your coworkers to organize together and to also link with your local organizations and uh, unions. I appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. No reason to, to reinvent the wheel. There's probably organiz multiple organizations in all the states doing this type of work. And, and you, you're based in New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, I am. Are the challenges that you all deal with there, are they unique to New Orleans or is it pretty similar to what's going on around the country? Well, Julian, you know, New Orleans is its own state. Mm, okay. Speak <laughs> we, we, we do our own thing. We have a little swag, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think things are very similar, but we do have our own challenges and barriers, as I'm sure many other cities do. So, for instance, a, a large part of the wages and the money that runs through our economy come, comes from basically tourism. Our workers, many of them are gig workers. You have Bourbon Street, you have Mardi Gras, you have a ton of festivals. A lot of our workers are gig workers. Some of them are street performers, but they're informal workers. And so a lot of them don't believe that just because they're not co connected to any particular agency or company, that certain laws don't apply to them. Also, we have hurricane season. Right. We have streetcars and the, the layout of the city flooding and all these other things that impact workers actually going to work. Right. Actually being able to come back and uh, like rebuild from a pandemic, from a hurricane and whatnot. The protections for workers when we have to evacuate for a hurricane. The last time I want to say it was Hurricane Ida, people were gone for weeks because the, the, the infrastructure of the city didn't support them coming back. There, there was no electricity. Workers were out of work for, like, out of wages for weeks simply because they had to evacuate for a hurricane. And we have hurricanes every year, right? So you just shared some of the barriers that exist on, uh, just because of the location that you all are in. And I know earlier mm -hmm. in the conversation, you mentioned some of the challenges that are specific to different groups, like even within the Black community. You mentioned women, for example, and advocating for child care needs. Can you speak to some of these different types of challenges that workers face that are specific to different groups in our community? So after Hurricane Katrina, where the city was basically underwater for a period of time, a lot of immigrant workers came into the city to help rebuild the city. Some of them were undocumented. So there's definitely a language barrier there. 
And so they definitely get exploited, get exploited, get threatened to get deported. They get their wages stolen. And also it's hard to navigate the city not speaking the language, right? Monolingual Spanish speakers. So that alone is a major barrier. And that's also a major issue when we talk about rural Louisiana. Folks that are like working with sugarcane, working through the crawfish plants and things like that, they're only they're not only secluded geographically, but they have a language barrier. The cost of childcare is expensive. And sometimes women are forced to use a large portion of their checks to pay for these expenses just so they'll be able to go to work and make up our wages. So childcare is an issue. Transportation was another issue. Public transportation isn't reliable in the city. So if you have to be to work at, let's say, 6 a.m., you're looking at leaving like close to four just to get to work on time, depending on where you live. Right. Education and training is an issue and also access to health care and, and not just like annual checkups and things like that. But people don't realize that also includes things like being able to afford sanitary products, even being able to afford a decent bra. Like all of those things are essential. But yeah, I think we all have barriers as, uh, in different groups that we, we face as low wage workers. Can you give me an example of an issue that you all have worked on? That's So what's the trajectory and how did the different pieces of the puzzle work together? So what's an issue that involved both the workers organizing, your organization? What other pieces exist? Are there legal or policy pieces? I'm just trying to get a good understanding of like uh, how these things move from one area to another one and how they get handled. A while ago, what we noticed was that there are a lot of reports about ice raids, right? Basically, they're kicking in doors and, you know, they're pulling over folks who may look like they're Mexican, right? All of those things. And then they bring them to the sheriff's office, right? They get booked, they get to the sheriff's office, and the sheriff would immediately call ICE so ICE can get them. And then it starts a deportation process, and so what, what also happened uh, was that in addition to the raids, they're raiding homes, they're raiding churches, they're also raiding job sites. And we saw that a lot in Mississippi as well. And they'll raid a job site, round up all the workers. Somebody may have made a call to say somebody's illegal or whatnot. And they'll round up all the workers, put them in jail, call ICE. Right. And so what happened with our organization, a few members, it happened to a few members, but also we had members on watch their ears to the ground that said, hey, these things are happening. This is what's happening in the jails. The jails, the sheriff's office is actually talking to ICE. They're reporting us to ICE. And so there was a cultural litigation agreement that the, the members and the organizers of this organization fought for that basically said, hey, once we're here in this jail, you cannot call somebody, call another department, another agency, which is ICE, to get them deported, right, um, and take them away from families and also keep them just so ICE can keep them longer than what they should have been kept, just so they can be picked up by ICE. And then folks were losing jobs and being deported. And so, I mean, to me, that's the trajectory that things generally take here. You have members, you have community members with their ears to the ground that say, hey, these things are happening in our community. I'd imagine that 
for many workers, especially if this is their first time bringing an issue up, that there might be some apprehension or fear of uh, retaliation. I'm assuming that, but is that accurate? Have you seen that play out or not play out? Absolutely. A lot of the times workers are a bit hesitant to organize because they are afraid of losing their jobs, right? And then also with the Department of Labor, we can say if you make claims, even with EEOC, if you make these claims, like these are confidential. And all the time, that's not always the case. Employers will somehow find out in some cases. And so you do have employees that don't want to lose their jobs and they are afraid to push back um, and advocate for their rights. However, a lot of the times, once they see the power that's behind them, meaning you have other workers that support you, you have an organization that supports you, you have like a city of members that are supporting you, they're more empowered to speak up against employers and oppression and wage stuff. But again, that's also all a part of education. So we can help you advocate and we can educate uh, you on these issues and walk you through the process of like solutions and how do we fix this. I think having that network of folks is definitely a, a, a big factor in folks considering if they want to join in the fight against an employer or not. What does the network offer? So the network offers just that, support. And support that can be in the form of education, training, but even care. Because a lot of the times, these things aren't siloed. They're triggering. They're impacting like your mental capabilities. The network is offering support if uh, you're experiencing wage theft or like any kind of unfairness, injustice in your place of employment, education, training even, but also an opportunity to have your voice heard, but also an opportunity to be a part of solutions at the state and, I'm sorry, at, yeah, at the state and local level. You mentioned silos a couple of times and something that stood out a couple minutes ago, you said something along the lines of we are oppressed because we're in silos. Can you speak more to that and how do we get out of these silos? I think that you're indicating that prevent us from joining and working together. Right. And so by silos, I mean the quote unquote specialties that the, the areas that people want to focus on and not connect outside of those areas. So environmental justice, racism, economic justice. When I say silos, I mean those things don't work and stand on their own. They all impact each other, right? So we have low-wage workers being impacted not just by the economy and the oppressions of capitalism, but also because of racism, right? I'm talking about environmental justice. It's not just because like the air pollution and things like that. It's because like we're pushing black people to live in areas near refineries where there is no air control quality, quality air control, right? All of these things intersect. We're talking about immigration and um, economic justice, like all of these things intersect. Racism, right? And so I think that if we work across those things, work together 
and addressed all of them instead of just trying to hit one at a time, we'll, have, we'll, be, we'll build more power collectively addressing those issues as they stand instead of trying to work on them individually, if that makes sense. You've touched on, you've given the example of wage theft a couple of times. I'd like to understand more like the ways that that manifests and how workers are able to identify it. Is it just like, you know, if they're working overtime and not getting that time and a half, or is there more to it that they can be aware of? Oh yeah, definitely more to it. So um, it could be working overtime and not getting paid time and a half, getting paid less than time and a half. It could be getting paid overtime, but only getting paid overtime, let's say after 45 hours, you're supposed to get paid overtime after 40 hours. It could be you're, you can't start work because you're waiting on a machine to get fixed. That time you're waiting for that machine to get fixed, you're on the clock. They can't not pay you for that, right? I remember a member reporting that he had several, like, 15-minute breaks throughout the day. And what they did is they combined all of his breaks into like one hour and docked him an hour. That is illegal. If you're a home care worker and you go from house to house dealing with clients and your employer doesn't pay you for the time you travel from house to house, that is illegal. So would a worker be able to go to like an employee handbook for this? Would they need to go to an organization such as you all to say, hey, something is up here? Like, Tell us again how folks can identify if they're unsure, you know, if, if wage theft is going on. I would... Definitely take a look at the handbook to see what it says, because also just because it's in the handbook doesn't make it legal Mm -hmm. unless you're unless you have some kind of contract that you signed. But however, like FMLA uh, and FLSA, those are federal laws that protect you from that. But then also check the Department of Labor website and look at what wage theft looks like, what, what all that entails. And maybe this is Louisiana specific, but if you don't make above 725 uh, an hour, once you average in your tips and your hours, technically your employer is supposed to pay you so you can make at least minimum wage because if you're making under minimum wage, it's illegal. So you will want to go about that by actually like learning the law, reviewing what it says is broken down on the Department of Labor website and getting with organizations, your local organizations, such as ours, that I help you walk through things like that because a lot of times you get to websites and it's a bunch of legal jargon that some folks can't understand. And obviously there's challenges, right? Some folks may not have access to internet. And as you mentioned, even if something is on the internet, it might be a bunch of legal jargon. So being able to identify those organizations that are offering the protection that you all are is is crucial. So appreciate you sharing that. Are you able to talk about, I see the Collective Steps Project. Are you able to talk about that? The Collective Steps Project was something I started a few years ago because, again, I was noticing that there were certain organizations and there were certain areas people were willing to volunteer for, pour pour, uh, money into, but not really focused on Black women or girls. So you have a lot of agencies that you know, want to find mentors for Black men and build them up and things like that. And they, you know, they appreciate in, in, in Black women and girls, but not really specific to them. 
And so the Collective Steps is an organization that aims to address the issues and the barriers uh, that impact us mentally, but also engage us in, in why it's important to stay engaged civically and how we can build power collectively. That's powerful. Can you give an example of how you all do that work, what it looks like? A lot of the times these girls don't have people that, that they can talk to and call on. A lot of the times they can't identify what's happening to them in terms of racism and how these things are wrong. And a lot of the times they don't believe that they actually have the right to do anything. So that looks like a 12 year old girl in school and maybe what is a detention? She got sent to detention and in detention, her principal made her dig a ditch and stood over her. Mm. Right. Like, like, right. How do you navigate that? How do you navigate being in an all white school and people are calling you ugly and picky head and all of those things? How do we build your confidence? And that also comes with knowing your history. You are gorgeous. Right. So it's a lot of encouragement and navigating those systems. Mm. That's powerful. So helping these young women, young girls identify when something is not right, giving them, empowering them with uh, education and tools, awareness to be able to say, okay, this is how you navigate. These are some ways to navigate these situations. Am I understanding that correctly? And helping them to learn that they also have a voice to empower themselves. Mm. And so there was also a situation where a couple of kids named that they were only allowed one or two bathroom breaks and a bunch of girls, again, girls go through their things, right? And and so what they did was they organized together. The same thing we tell workers, you talk to other students, y'all organize together. We can even do a bit of power mapping. Who has the power to change this? Where, is these, where are these decisions being made and how do we address them? That's incredible. Did you have something like this when you were coming up? No. Actually, no one's ever asked me that. No, I, I honestly did not get taught about organizing until I became an adult. However, which is very interesting, I always knew my history and the history of organizing. But it was never connected. Like, this is what organizing is. This is what we should do. Right. It was kind of siloed, like I said. But it took for somebody to sit down with me and educate me on this is why that happened. This is organizing and this is what we need to do. Um, mm. But no, I did not have that when I was. Okay. And I promise we'll get back to the other part of your, what you were sharing about the collective steps. But now that we're on history, just a quick follow up to that. In your developing of your understanding of the history of the organizing and, and labor movements, uh, what stands out to you as those key parts that you were like, okay, I'm absorbing this and now I see my role in this and how I'm going to move forward. Can you sort of walk me through, you know, your gathering this understanding and then growing into, you know, who you are and taking the action, the ways that you do? Yeah. And so in learning about civil rights, you, you, you hear the, the normal stories, right? You hear about the bus, the bus boycott. You hear about the church bombings and things like that, right? And the thing that was fascinating to me is that no matter what we're talking about, no matter what movement that we're talking about, a big piece of that was young people leading that. You, you have college students, the fresh on campus 
that are leading a lot of these movements historically. And so that was the fascination about, about around why these things happened, but also why wasn't I hearing about people of girls like me? There was this civil rights movement, beautiful, but what about the black women and girls? Who were the black women in the civil rights movement? What were the barriers to those black women being in the movement? Where were any of the little girls? And so it was questions that I had because I didn't see images like me. I didn't hear stories that involved girls like me that encouraged me to look more into it. And then now you're offering these programs that are giving that context that you, you know, had to develop on your own, but giving it to, to other women so and young girls so they can maybe get it at an mm -hmm. earlier age. Is that right? Correct. That's great. So just to circle back to that, I appreciate you going through what the Collective Sex program is offering the uh, young women in the program, but talk about the women's element of the program. So the women's element is very similar, actually. A lot of the times, because we've been so conditioned to accept certain things, a lot of things go unnoticed, but they're impactful mentally. And so we're talking about Black mamas being put in jail and how that impacts the family unit. Talking about being a single mom but not making a living wage and having to choose between food and what, maybe getting a tooth pulled, choosing between putting food on the table and buying tampons or what have you, and why those things are in place. So we're unpacking a lot of things mentally, but trying to better them also mentally and socially and economically. And also the importance of civic engagement, because you have a lot of folks like, why does it matter that I vote? And then you go through the history you know, you have all these people that died for the right to vote because they knew the power in voting. Here's why we have all these systems in place. Here's who have, has the power to change that. Here's what you not voting does for your community and how it doesn't change anything that we're trying to address. And so the women's program basically addresses what we need to change on a political side but also address how do we unpack those things mentally so that we're be better prepared for that fight. Do the women that participate in these programs, uh, do they come and seek your organization out? Do you go out into the community? How do you, how do folks get engaged with this aspect of the organization? A lot of the times it's us going, seeking those people out, right? And so what that looks like is there's an election coming up, um, talking to community members about how to support the uh, their fellow community members and going to vote, doing a lot of GOTV work, right? That looks like us setting up support groups and like these sipping chats and then going find community members and say, hey, come talk to us. Latoya, at the end of the day, when your work is done, you've given it all you've got over your lifetime, you know, what, what does victory look like? What is your vision of victory? My vision of victory would be able to see the continuation of the work happening, right? In my lifetime, right? Because ideally, eventually we get to that liberation piece. But in my lifetime, um, seeing the continuation. So um, if we don't have enough social workers and medical care folks in the community, us training those community members up to be able to, to, to support and care for their community members on their own, right? Us, us 
educating folks enough to be able to go out on their own and do more of that education work, right? So, so I, I, I think of success as me teaching or us giving community members all the tools that they need so that they can go out and do the same, go educate, go organize, and then it, it become a domino effect. Latoya, I appreciate you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you sharing your story and your work. And I'm positive that folks listening will get a lot out of this. Appreciate you. All right. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter, and your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we realize we have to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Graciela Mayo-Latizzi, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Marcel Hutchins and Sydney Smith. Joanna Samuels is our audio engineer who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>